What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out BlueWirePods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. What it do, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli coming at you without Andrew D. Bailey this time. We are, as usual, super pleased to be joined by Adam Frommel, the founder and editor-in-chief of NBAMath.com and also a quality editor for Bleacher Report. We are going to continue on with our decade player rankings. We are moving on to the Dallas Mavericks. This was an incredibly difficult one. Before we get started, though, just the usual housekeeping notes. First and foremost, please, 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 pretty please with sugar on top, continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. The ratings and reviews will especially help out at this point since someone was mad about something I said about Kyrie Irving on the last podcast, even though I think I defended him, or maybe they were just mad that Kyrie Irving existed in general. So let's try to offset some of those little one-star shenanigans that are that are going out there. We'd really appreciate it. You can also find us wherever else you're consuming your podcast, be it Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, all that good stuff. Also, be sure to check us out on YouTube where we are posting all this po- these podcasts if that's where you like to get your audio fix. YouTube.com, search Hardwood Knox, and you will find us. Last but certainly not least, shout out to this week's sponsor for making this podcast possible, betonline.ag. Remember to use the promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, to receive your welcome bonus. You'll be hearing from them again in just a little bit. With all of those housekeeping notes now complete, Adam, how the hell are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here as always. And I'm also very curious about this one-star review that centered around Kyrie Irving. Can you can you elaborate on that for me? So the the title of the comment was Kyrie Irving, and the actual comment was um, faux intelligible who who thinks he knows better than everyone else. And I'm wondering if they were trying to describe me or Kyrie Irving? I guess they could technically be trying to describe you. I just thought it was, he's a pseudo-intellectual that thinks he knows more than everyone else, was the comment. Uh, and it was titled Kyrie. So if they're describing Kyrie, maybe they were mad that we had him at number two in Cleveland's rankings and thought he should be lower? It sounds like a way to describe Kyrie, because I, I think that's like a pretty common characterization of him at this point. It might be, but then why are you giving us one star? That's all I'm saying. I don't know, but I, I don't think either of us would be described as a pseudo-intellectual because it's like very clear that we're just not at all. Yeah, I, we're definitely large children, so that's like that's another inaccuracy. So uh, if you're mad that we spoke about Kyrie Irving, I make zero apologies. Uh, but whatever beef you have with Kyrie Irving, maybe take it up with Kyrie Irving instead of the one-star ratings on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is that we don't have to talk about Kyrie Irving 
on this podcast. We get to talk about a point guard who's much better at some point. Wow, you really have like high opinion of JJ Barrera. I mean, I was referring to to Jason Terry, but oh, but yeah, sure, fair enough. Uh, so. Who do we have, uh, just as a quick review for maybe people who are just tuning in for the first time, Adam and I ranked our top 10 players of the decade for the Dallas Mavericks, beginning with the 2010-2011 season. We also sent out a fan survey. We compiled those three rankings together to come up with a composite score, and that's what we will be reading off. We'll also give our opinions on where we had said players and where you, the fans, the listeners, had said players as well. But Adam, can you get us started with who checked in at number 10? I know you were angry about this. Yeah, I I can. So at number 10, we had a point guard who historically is better than Kyrie Irving, but has not been better than Kyrie Irving during the last decade. I'm just going to try to mention him as many times as possible throughout this podcast now. But yeah, number 10 is Jason Kidd. Uh, He checked in at number seven from the fans at number 10 for you. And he did not make my top 10, though I did consider him. Um, ultimately like his, his performance in the 2011 finals as, as great as it was and as effective as he was throughout the postseason, just didn't overcome the, the lack of thereness throughout this decade. He only spent two seasons there, um, during the scope of, of our analysis and, and wasn't very good during the regular seasons. Look, Dallas is where he learned to shoot. Basically, I feel like, and he shot well over those two seasons with the Mavericks. I do. I I would guess that there's a little bit of conflation with his entire Mavericks tenure, where some people probably thought that he was there this decade longer than he was because he did arrive there in 2008. Um, but his first, you know, two plus seasons with the Mavericks don't fall under our purview. That being said, this man was absolutely huge for them. Uh, during the finals of their championship run. And I totally get not putting him higher than 10th or 9th or around there because the sample size isn't that huge. Um, he was older, wasn't contributing uh, at the level of that you would maybe expect from a you know top 10 uh, player in a franchise that actually has good choices to choose from. But the, the finals run, that entire playoff run, he was huge for them. He shot incredibly well from three during the finals. I, I can't overlook that. That team was special and, and he was sort of a big part of it. And that presence he eventually brought over to the Knicks in 2012. There's that steadying game managing presence while he was on the floor, no matter how old he got. And I do think that that was valuable as well. It was in theme with uh, the other type of characters that they had on that roster when you look at a Tyson Chandler or or Jason Terry. And so I, I totally get, again, not putting him higher than 10th, especially because of the way he dipped out in 2012 where he was like yeah I'll come back and then it was yeah I'm actually gonna go to the Knicks so I I get all that if you don't like Jason Kidd as a person I totally understand that as well too I would be inclined to think that a lot of people in Milwaukee and Brooklyn agree with you at this point I still think and outside of those locations like in Denver for example yeah there's also places in New York too so there's just but again I understand not having him on but there's a clear case to me for putting him in uh, the top 10 here. And just to drive home my point, he shot 43% basically from deep in, in the finals against, against the heat. And so 6.3 assists per game there as well. And so when that kind of performance just results, helps result in a title while playing over 37 minutes per game, mind you at his age, which that was his age 37 season. I, I just can't overlook that. And that, that swung it for me compared to the, the other players that were up for consideration, which we will obviously talk about at the end. Yeah, I, I totally understand having him in the top 10. I can't begrudge that. I, I can get a little annoyed that multiple people actually had him in second place on their ballots, which I assume, as as you mentioned, was probably because 
they didn't limit to this decade when they were trying to come up with their rankings. Um, yeah, I mean, there were there were so many players in contention for these bottom spots. It, it really felt like I, I don't know I don't know how you felt, but for me, it was like there are six players who were definitely going to be on here, but then like seven through fifteen or sixteen were all pretty tightly squeezed together for me and, and really could have gone in a number of different directions. And, and kid just got left off because I, I have trouble with how, how you value such a small sample size that was the NBA finals, even if that was like quite obviously the most seminal portion of this decade for Dallas. Totally makes sense to me. Who rolls in at number nine? At number nine, we had Dwight Powell who did not make the fans top 10. He was actually down at number 11. Um, I had him at number eight, and you had him at number eight as well. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Dwight Powell's game. That He's always been a shooter in theory, but never in practice. However, I respect the thereness. There we go. We have to get that in there. He's been... Always. He's been, you know, for a second-round pick, the career that he's carved out is absolutely spectacular, and he's sixth in minutes played during this decade for, for Dallas. And... He does do a lot of important things. He's been a solid rim runner for them. And the fact that he can play with other bigs in in large part, not necessarily because he's shot the three well at different points of his career when you look at some of those end-of-season uh, tears that he's gone on, but also because he can defend uh, essentially both front court spots. And that's huge. It's, it was huge early on with with Kristaps Porzingis. It allowed him to really act as the, the defensive center. Uh, and I, I think there's a, a ton of value in that. And so that plus the longevity... Uh, which is, of course, in jeopardy a little bit following his Achilles injury. I just think that he had to be in this list. I thought about putting him higher, but I, I really just couldn't do it. Again, And this is me saying I'm not really a huge fan of Dwight Powell's game. I think he's become a little bit overrated in the macro, but I do recognize that what he's done for this team and his career arc in general is pretty special. I actually am a bigger fan of Dwight Powell's game, and it's largely because of how good he is as a finisher on the interior without being solely a finisher on the interior. Like, I, I don't I don't really view him as someone like a Rudy Gobert or a DeAndre Jordan who's taking every single shot from within five feet. And that is in no way meant to denigrate that archetype. Like that's a very valuable offensive style of play. Um, but he he did a little bit more than that, and yet still every season of his career, he shot above 70% from inside three feet, including before the Achilles tear this year, 81.3% inside three feet. And like the ability to be that consistent um, as, as a finisher around the hoop is really valuable, especially when coupled with the ability to shoot free throws at an above 70% clip because he doesn't have to be scared of drawing fouls when he's so consistently crashing towards the hoop. Um, so I've always really enjoyed the way he plays because of that element, even if I also wish that he could have expanded his offensive arsenal a bit more. Um, so I'm, I'm with you where it was like, I was looking for, I was looking for an excuse to move him up higher, but I, I ultimately couldn't do it because despite the fact that it feels like he's been around forever, like, and the bareness factor that is so obviously there to some extent, like he is still only six, 10 minutes played for the decade, which actually surprised me a little bit. I thought he'd be higher. I actually didn't think he'd be higher, but it's weird to also say only six because that's, right, right. that is pretty high. Now, we both, I had, we should mention my number nine because he was off the list, correct? He did not make the composite cut. That is correct. Uh, and it's my 10 who also did not make the cut, obviously. Devin fucking Harris. Look, one, if you want to- Smooth wanna, scorer. 
yes, one, if you want to look at it through this perspective, he helped them get Jason Kidd because he was traded for Jason Kidd uh, in 2008. But uh, always a guy who was just solid. And I really viewed that second go round with the Mavericks. Like there were, there were minutes where he played small forward for them this decade where Mm -hmm. they would go with those three guard lineups and just someone that you could really rely on to do that. And some of those lineups were actually super potent and weren't these defensive train wrecks. Uh, I'm not giving him full credit for that, but when you just look at his, versatility i think it was just one of those understated things when we're looking at guards you wouldn't name him as as a guard that would fall under that umbrella and yet he was there like he gave you a lot of positional optionality um definitely at the one and two and the mavericks probably stretched beyond that by giving him these spurts at the three and there was just something that you know when you factor in the the thereness because he's seventh in minutes played for the mavericks um it was it was tough for me to leave him off the list. I understand because there are so many options why the fans would. Uh, he's also, I think, at least during these years, he's a, a better shooter in reputation than what the actual numbers say. Uh, he shot 33.3% um, this decade with Dallas, but a good amount of that was the tail end of, of his career. Still just love what he brought to the table as sort of a, a game-managing passer a little bit. And like you've already said, a, a smooth scorer at his peak, which he wasn't at during this decade for Dallas. But even when he came back, someone who was plug-and-play, even despite these topsy-turvy three-point clips. And that might be the best way to encapsulate what he did because I, I feel like sometimes um, players are harder to fit in when they're not hitting their three-ball because that's the easiest way to be plug-and-play is stand behind the three-point line, catch-and-shoot, uh, that wasn't always the strength of his game, but yet he seemed to fit every single iteration of the Mavericks. So Harris did check in at 13 in the fan vote, but he was kind of like the start of a new tier below the top 12. So he, Wesley Matthews, and Darren Williams were all kind of tightly packed together. Um, I'm not sure that third name is fair to include with the first two, but he was like pretty far removed from the top 10 for the fans, which is interesting. I also did want to clarify, like, you, you were talking about his second stint in Dallas, and I assume you're talking about 2013-14 through midway through the 2017-18 season. And I only ask because it's kind of weird that Harris has actually had three separate stints with the Mavericks. He uh, he began his career there, spent the first three and a half seasons um, of his of his career with the Mavericks, came back in 2013, and then ended up back in Dallas for the 2018-19 season. Yeah, so I just consider that stint just like the same because he ended up, he started 2017, 2018 in Dallas, ended it in Denver. We're just going to forget about the Devin, the, the, the Denver. Portion. He just went back to Dallas. So it was like, did he ever really leave right. if it was consecutive seasons? But uh, yeah, he left his body left, but his heart never left. And remember how everyone was excited when they weren't over the moon, but when the nuggets picked up Paris, it was considered like, Oh, right. that's a good, like a good death piece. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Attention Hardwood Knox listeners with currently no NBA, NHL or MLB you might think that there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, BetOnline, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. BetOnline has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can also bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Who comes in at number eight? 
no one does because we have a tie at number seven. Uh, we'll talk about Vince Carter first because shout out to Vince who didn't get to uh, finish his NBA career quite like he wanted to with the uh, the season on hiatus, but still enjoyed a, a very memorable career. Um, he was not in the top 10 for the fans. He was number nine for me. He was actually up at number six for you. And I kind of regret not having him higher because like he was his time in Dallas, even if it wasn't as memorable as what we saw earlier in his career with New Jersey and with Toronto, it kind of like encapsulated his ability to completely reinvent his game as an effective role player who didn't need to be that star demanding touches at all times, but could still add a lot of value as a veteran presence as a versatile defender, as a spot up three point shooter. Um, I don't, I don't remember if it was in Dallas where he started taking more threes and twos, but it had to be close. And I think that that's just like a good summary of, of how he was willing to kind of have this amorphous identity that just bettered his team, which is not something you see from a lot of former stars. Right, and that's part of the reason I put him so high is because Dallas is really really where he mastered that transition. And we have the shot against the Spurs in the playoffs, of course, just one of the biggest playoff shots in Mavericks postseason history. Uh, and just – he also – he has to lead – um, he has to be the leader in the player that you thought was on the 2011 Mavericks, but he actually wasn't. That's the biggest like brain fart that I hear when just talking to people in passing conversation about that is where they think that Vince Carter has a ring with that team. And it's like, oh, he actually doesn't, which is sad because he would have been perfect for that team. Everything you said, though, I can really only echo it. And the, the transition, so I don't want to say seamlessly, but so effectively from – someone who was operating as a star to like the super valuable role player who could hold his own on defense a little bit, who gave you, uh, you know, an off ball option from, from beyond the arc during his time in Dallas. I, I just respect the the hell out of it. And that shot, at least against the Spurs is going to be one of the ones that I remember uh, just the most watching live. I'm sure maybe it'll fade a little bit as I see more uh, just playoff games, but I still remember where I was, what I was doing when, when he hit that look and, and it really, you know, put San Antonio on tilt in that moment. So uh, that was absolutely huge. And the fact that he wasn't on the 2011 team, he probably has the next best type of credential there when you look at that game winner against the Spurs. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. Um, I, I do like throwing some trivia questions at you during these podcasts because it's fun to watch you kind of squirm a little bit in front of the backdrop of 10,000 shoes back there. Um, so if you could click away from Vince Carter's basketball reference page, if you have it open. Okay. Not open. Can you name all of the teams he's played for throughout his career? No, I won't even come close. Let's see how many I could get, though. The Nets, the Raptors, the Mavericks, the Hawks, the Grizzlies. There are three more. My God, there are three more? I'm not even going to come close. There are three more. I'm not even going to come close to this. Yeah, I'm going to let me go through them. I would have been one short, I think. I'm three short. That hurts. He was never – no, that's not him. Glad I didn't say that one. That would have looked bad. <laughs> well, well, I, I want to know what it was going to be I'll tell now. you off the air, Adam. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Secrets from the listeners. Um. Holy shit. Oh, he was on the Kings. He was on the Kings. That's one that I definitely thought you'd get because that was like they're, they're going to make the playoffs, but – no, they're not, and then they're going to call out writers who said that they were trying to make the playoffs. But that's a that's a story for another time. I'm not. I already said the Raptors, right? I didn't like. Forget. You already said the Raptors. That would uh, be an embarrassing one to forget. Well, I think we did this with someone else, and I forgot like the most obvious team that they were on. So that tends to happen. No, it was. I, I know we did it with Joe Johnson, and I think you forgot Phoenix. Yes, that was a fairly obvious one. 
Um, was he on the Magic? He was on the Magic. There we go. So how many? And now missing? we got the one left that I don't think I would have got, even though you just said it because it's Phoenix. Oh. He spent he spent he spent fifty one games in Phoenix during the twenty ten eleven season. I, he was uh, he was traded there from Orlando, I believe. Yeah, he uh, he Marcin Gortat and Mikhail Petras and a twenty eleven first round draft pick that became Nikola Mirotic were traded for Earl Clark, Jason Richardson, and Hito Turkoglu. I don't remember Vince Carter on the Suns at all. You can claim I, I watch games don't then. That's fine. Either. I don't yeah. remember him at all. I'm not even sure that happens. I'm gonna need someone's gonna need to check that. Someone go to the tape. I'm not. I'm not googling it now. I choose to believe that Vince Carter was never on the Suns. We can we can go with that. But you know who else was never on the Suns? Because that's sure? a great segue. That's a <laughs> fantastic sure? segue. They're still no, we're though. not. I I definitely need to verify this now because I'm second guessing my memory. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Tied for seventh, we have uh, the one and only Harrison Barnes, who I can confirm has only played for the Golden State Warriors, Dallas Mavericks, and Sacramento Kings. Can we just uh, say that Harrison Barnes is like the king of free agency? Always hits it at the right time, always plays well enough or gets a stock high enough to where he's going to get these big deals. Maybe I should have put him on my list just for that, as he's able to, I don't want to say swindle these teams because he's a really good player, probably borderline top 100 in the NBA today. I will, however, say I know. Dallas is where he kind of branched out as a scorer, and it was like, oh, he can do some stuff in isolation, but he was never really effective at getting to the line or as a secondary playmaker, and his tenure there was just kind of, I would call it borderline, verging on, if not unequivocally forgettable, and that took me aback that he was not only on this list, but that he was so high. Yeah, so you did not have him in the top 10. I had him at number seven. The fans had him at number eight. And I, I kind of like, I just respected the ability to get paid. So I think he did play well enough to justify that. Granted, for some bad teams, and he wasn't the superstar that they maybe hoped that he could be coming off of those like smaller role years with Golden State. But he was still a pretty potent three-level scorer. His defense, I thought, was always underrated because he could body up against bigger players. He was still switchable against smaller forwards. Like he was never a defensive superstar, but he was he was a, a, a good good to better than good defender against a lot of different matchup types. And I think that that versatility on that end really helped those teams a lot, even if they never really experienced much much success. But then again, like during the the two and a half years that he were there, he was there. Like I don't think they were like terrible with him on the court. It, yeah, but he, he never, I felt like, elevated them. And that's just not, look, if you can have someone that's just going to go out there and score like a number one guy, uh, your offense is still not going to be highly rated if he is your number one guy. And so th- there's that trade-off there. But he's a, he's a good player, and he does, on better teams or where he's not the number one guy, he does know how to play within those confines. And there's definitely right. value in that. And he's someone who could defend both forward spots, maybe even a few twos at this point. So just a very good player. I just, I I don't know. It was, maybe I'm not giving him enough credit because of what everyone viewed him as when he was going from golden state to Dallas just wasn't someone I I considered a, a top 10 guy, even despite. He's also fifth in minutes played during the decade, which again was a little bit surprising to me just because he didn't spend that much time there. But like, if you look at the guys who were ahead of him, JJ Barea, Wesley Matthews, Sean Marion and Dirk Nowitzki, we're going to talk about three of them in more detail Wesley coming Matthews up. Wesley being number three is wild. It is. It is. But and I, I was going to bring him up here because even though he was there for a lot, like he forgot how to shoot um, coming off those injuries in Dallas. And it was, you know, that that was even more disappointing than, than Harrison Barnes's tenure 
if you consider that disappointing. So like the, the awareness factor is big for me, the ability to get paid, the kind of understated defensive defensive prowess that, that he displayed. Maybe prowess is too strong a word for Harrison Barnes, but you know what I mean. There were there were just a couple of factors that that wanted me to have him at the head of my should they be included class, which encompassed so many different players. We need a catch all term for ability to get paid. We just let's keep it there with the Nesses and go with like walletness or bank account. Walletness. I no, it's walletness. First thought is always the best thought. Also except ha- when it's not. Also when Harrison Barnes is done in the NBA, he can make a killing narrating audiobooks. I'm just throwing it out there. He just has one of those. He's always been a great interview. Like even even dating back to North Carolina, didn't he like take public speaking classes or something to make sure that he was really good in interviews? Yeah, he's I he's he's super smart, and you could tell. Um, but not everyone. It's a Black Falcon brand, wasn't that what it was? Didn't he like try to brand himself while he was still in college? Am I remembering that right? I have no idea. I do not pay attention to college basketball except for crash courses, but right before the draft. You guys can come here for your draft analysis this year, by the way. <laughs> it is. It is. It was a uh, Black Falcon back as a freshman at UNC. And he was already like so polished and he was uh, he was trying really hard to, to create the brand back then. All right. So we just need to find the book that he can do, um, the audio book that he could do. It should be long, though, because he just he has I think the you voice should write book. it. You should write it specifically for him. On Walletness, narrated On- by <laughs> Harrison Barnes. <laughs> Who I think came, it's a great idea. Who came in at number six? At number six, um, for me, this was kind of the step up um, to like the guys who I didn't think there was any doubt that they were going to appear fairly high in these rankings. And it's Jason Terry, who I had at exactly six. The fans had him up at number four. You had him down at number seven. Um, I think the the airplane celebrations after the three-pointers were so memorable, especially on that 2010-11 title-winning team. Uh, but even if we're not counting the first five years of his time in Dallas and only looking at the two seasons that count, like he was so incredibly valuable as a floor spacer, as an energy guy, as a secondary scoring option. Um, I just I didn't think there was any doubt that he belonged here. No, there is no doubt to me. It's just when you got to this point, uh, looking at where I put him, the not that the top seven could have gone in any order, but for me. Probably four, five, six, and seven. I think you could have ordered any way that you wanted to. And and he's just looking at, you know, like you said, only two of his seasons fall under this purview. He definitely, he's, during these two seasons, if I had to guess, do you know what his numbers were for these two seasons? Yeah, I, I do. All right. Well, if you would have given me an over under, did he average 15 points per game? I probably would have taken the under. It was, of course, the over because it's, it's Jason freaking Terry. Uh, so. Shot the three well well for them, like you said. Valuable floor spacer. Loved the celebrations. Loved his personality. Again, I think it was having someone like him in that locker room. That that 2011 Mavericks team was just so special, and, and he was a mammoth part of, of that equation. All right, so so my, my hot take of the podcast. I think Jason Terry is one of the most underrated scorers in NBA history who never averaged 20 points a game. Is that- I mean, once you throw in that or one of the, one of the best, really one of the best scorers who didn't score twenty points per game. That's I feel like just because you threw in the under twenty points per game qualifier, that's not really a hot take. You need to call him one of the most underrated scores in NBA history. Period for that to be even sort of spicy. All right, I'll go with that then. I mean, I'm with it. I would I would probably agree. It's also kind of amazing. I mean, when you spend so much time um, in the sort of the meat of your career like he wasn't he was a starter in like the first half of his career and then he kind of transitioned into the six-man role uh it was probably a little bit harder for him to crack that but 19.6 points per game with dallas in 2008 
2009 and and just a guy who always shot the three ball not just relatively well but but really well had a few down seasons but his numbers were by and large particularly compared to the years when you're looking at the league at league average were superb and he's one of the best headband rockers in nba history i think that's important too i think it matters like some people were just born to wear a headband and and he was one of them I, I and that's the kind of analysis. That's the pseudo intellectual analysis that's earning us one star reviews. Uh, do you know what he shot in the 2011 playoffs? I don't, but it's probably high. 44, I'm going to go with like 40, 42%, 44%. 44.2% from three. Hit almost 50% of his twos. And if you saw the twos, if anyone remembers the twos that Jason Terry used to take, that's actually that's a pretty good clip. And he averaged 70.5 points per game just another guy where it's like oh that's his age 33 season and he's averaging 30 minutes per game and it, it really just doesn't even oh, it really just doesn't even matter i hope we never forget about how fun that 2010-11 dallas mavericks team was because it was like it was so clearly the dirk show but they had so many fun veterans who just really played great basketball in their roles it was just it was one of those examples of a team like fully embracing its identity and its roles from top to bottom and obviously that pays off it's like it was very spursian I don't think it will ever get lost to history just because of the team that they cut right. down when they were in the But I don't mean the result so much as the aesthetic pleasure of watching that team. Yeah, that's fair. That will probably get lost because it always does. Who do we have coming in at number five? Speaking of the aesthetic pleasure of watching someone, we have uh, J.J. Barea at number five. He was number six for the fans. I actually had him up at number three, and you had him at number five. So tell me why I'm wrong. I mean, look, the thereness factor is through the roof. I don't know. I just, how important, like, how good is J.J. Barrera? Like, he had, like, look at the seasons he's had during this decade. Like, still really good and has shot the three ball well for them a bunch. A steadying presence when you're looking at backup point guards. But aside from the thereness, I want to know what distinguishes him for you from the players that you put him in front of. We're talking guys like Sean Marion, and Tyson Chandler. Right. It's, it's largely the thereness. And I refuse to acknowledge that his three year Minnesota Timberwolves tenure happened. He's always played for the Mavericks. He spent his entire career there in my head. Um, but it's the, uh, it's the ability to, to not do more was, was big for me. Like it's, uh, we, we talk about that. We need, 20- to, we need to cut in that Paul Rudd clip from forgetting Sarah Marshall. Do, do less, do less, <laughs> do less. Yeah. Might as well have been talking about J.J. Barea, who, who listened. Because it, it was like, you know, when his three-point shot wasn't falling, he didn't force the issue. When he wasn't finishing around the rim, he didn't force the issue. But just like that guy who, who played hard, who defended as best as he could given the limitations of his, his 5'10 frame, um, and, and was just – he was not just there, but he was there in the right ways. So even if that didn't necessarily manifest in box score numbers, even if he never scored more than what, like uh, 10 11.6 points per game is his career high, um, so also high with the Mavericks. I thought he scored more than Minnesota, but again, we're not acknowledging that part of his career. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it was just that, that knack for avoiding mistakes and doing the right things for so long. And I think he, his, his personality and, and the competitiveness, I think really permeated through that roster throughout the time he was there. And like, as hard as it is to say a guy who wasn't a starter, who wasn't a star kind of 
lent his identity to the team. I think he largely did that during both their more competitive seasons and the ones where they, they struggled but still played hard and overachieved under Rick Carlisle's tutelage. Maybe I'm underselling him too because they brought him back and have kept him basically for the past two seasons. I know he's dealing with the Achilles injury now, but where you didn't necessarily need him. And the other thing I'll say is you look up like most of the bench units he headlined um, during his separate stays with Dallas, and they always just destroy people. And it didn't really matter who was around him. So maybe I'm underselling him in that that regard. But I think everything you said is justified. But as you mentioned at the top of this podcast, figuring out really the meat and potatoes of this list, not just the lower guys for me, but yeah, there might have been a consensus six to put on here, but but ordering like four of those six was extremely difficult. This was the toughest by far. So far, yeah. So far, yeah. I think without a doubt for me. Speaking of though, let's get tougher. Who did you have at number four? So number four, the uh, the composite rankings have Sean Marion, who was number five for me, number five for the fans, and number three for you. Um, and while we're we're rewriting history and forgetting about J.J. Barea's tenure with the Minnesota Timberwolves, we're also going to make Sean Marion a fucking Hall of Famer because he absolutely deserves that. And it, it's one of my biggest gripes with like anything related to basketball that he's not because he is a generational defender. He was a immensely valuable offensive player during his prime. And even if he wasn't in his prime with those Dallas teams, like he was so damn good throughout throughout his brief time there, just filling a smaller scoring role, just wreaking havoc everywhere on defense, even though he his three point shot like completely abandoned him in Dallas. Like he was still just so valuable. Yeah, there's Sean Marion needs to get into the Hall of Fame. Him and Chris Weber. Those are my probably two biggest gripes at the moment, uh, regard to absence of Hall of Fame. I'm actually surprised he wasn't higher. Obviously, because I had him at three. But I'm just wondering what the argument is for him not to be like. I thought the top three were pretty obvious. I thought I really struggled honestly with with two through with two through five, um, and I, that was that was reflected to some extent in the fan vote as well, where three through five were all basically interchangeable with the scores that they generated, and then the top two were very much a consensus. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there's a, a great case to be made for, for any of these guys to be number three. Yeah. I mean, dude, Sean Marion just defended the toughest wings while he was in Dallas. Absolutely monstrous for them. Um, during that 2011 title run, uh, I, I stand Sean Marion and his hall of fame case. It would have been, imagine he would have probably been in the hall of fame already if he shot better from three. I feel like some people were maybe had a better jump shot form. I feel like that. I was going to say, I think that that really held held him, held him back a little bit too. So, but like you said, one of just the, the best defenders in, in recent NBA history. And when you look at the assignments that he had to cover just, and, and he was like, he gave you optionality on defense that now you expect your defensive anchors to have on the perimeter, but he did it really before it was a necessity or even novel at that point. And I don't know if that's part of why he's so underrated is he wasn't as appreciated as he should have been in, in real time perhaps, but I, I don't think I can add anything beyond what I, what I said to what you already said. And I think what I just said is just circling a bunch of what you just said. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think Sean Marion was always the primary defender on LeBron James during those 2011 NBA finals, but LeBron James does not end up standing in the corner if Sean Marion is not on that team. Right. And he did cover LeBron James for like a like a good chunk of possessions too, if memory serves me correctly. Yeah. 
So moving on from one great defender to another, we have Tyson Chandler at number three. Uh, he was number three for the fans. He was number four for both of us. Um, you know, he it's, it's another guy. Like, I feel like we're saying the same thing about all of these Mavericks who are on that 2010-11 team. But, like, he wasn't what he was at his peak, which probably came in New Orleans for Tyson Chandler. But, like, he accepted his role and he just flat out thrived in it. Um, the fairness factor is not there for him. He only played that 2010-11 season before going to New York. He came back for the 2014-15 season where he averaged another double-double. He was, again, a pretty valuable big man on the interior before he has kind of gotten phased out in recent years as the, as the game has stylistically evolved. But what he did during those two seasons was so valuable that, again, like it, it's tough to balance the fairness factor with the maximizing of your, of your role factor. But I, I think there's a, a legitimate case for him in any of these two through six spots. Yeah, and it, I, I grappled with the lack of a sample size, thinking, you know, should I move him lower outside the top five, maybe? But there are three players on that Mavericks team that I think you could say they don't win a title without, and he's one of them. Just the way, being a defensive quarterback, what he could really do for them, and he, he brought that to New York when he went there in 2011, just absolutely huge. And you talk about finishing, uh, just such a reliable during that season in, in Dallas specifically, just such a reliable guy to have setting screens and, and rolling towards the basket. And really just the commitment he showed to playing hard on every possession is just, it's borderline peerless. And so because that season ends in a title, it definitely buttresses his case in ways that it wouldn't otherwise had as if that team had lost in the, the conference finals or just been the footnote to the Miami Heat's title run that they were supposed to be. Uh, still, everything he did for that team, everything he represented for that team, the fact that they basically brought him back, I feel like, because they knew that they fucked up and never should have let uh, him leave or just let that team dissolve in the first place, that serves a purpose too. You know, if we're going to look at Harrison Barnes's walletness, let's look at let's look at regret and the level of regret that he basically uh, invited from the Mavericks franchise forever, letting him walk away because it's so tough to find. I would say, yeah, you know what particularly now and even maybe then, you can find rim runners. But what he did intellectually, I'll say, on defense, just being the, the quarterback of everything for them is is invaluable. And they're, it's indescribable, really. And it, it really manifested in that postseason push and was kind of a, a huge essence of just what that Mavericks team was. You, when you think of that Mavericks team, you almost think – not, you wouldn't think of Tyson Chandler before Dirk Nowitzki, but he might be the second player you think of just because of the defensive identity that they established and the overall uh, identity that that they had, where it was this this team that kept pushing, kept playing hard, was just gritty. And Tyson Chandler just embodies that ethos more so than anyone else on that roster. Right, and, and they won 57 games in the finals with him there in 2010-11. Then they won 36 games in the lockout shortened season, 41 in 2012-13, 49 in 2013-14. Then he comes back and they win 50 games again. Um, and he actually led that 50-win team in win shares, which is an interesting footnote as well. But what could they have done during that three-season stretch if he had stayed there instead of going to New York? I mean, you've still got prime Dirk Nowitzki, you've still got Vince Carter there as a role player, you've still got J.J. Barea there as a role player because he never went to Minnesota. Um, you know, they, that, that team still had the pieces. And if, and if you have that defensive quarterback, that rim protector, that rim runner, who's so immensely valuable in his role, like, are we talking about like more of a, di a dynastic team than we saw? Probably. And as you mentioned with the wind shares, he's third 
in the decade in win shares for the Mavericks, but 13th in minutes. And I know that those catch-alls can really favor bigs, but that's still pretty impressive. Absolutely. Number two. Tell me why it's tell me why it's I can't even think of a random name right now. I'm slacking. I was gonna say tell me why it's Delon Wright, but that felt mean because I really like Delon Wright. <laughs> Delon Wright actually did not get a single vote, which surprised me. We've seen far worse players get votes. Um, but yeah, no, number two, we have uh, Luka Doncic, which is a, a, a fascinating one because he's only played 126 games for Dallas. He's 14th in minutes played. So from the volume standpoint, from the bareness standpoint, he's obviously not there, especially on a franchise that that has had so many valuable players. But, you, you know, I had him at two, you had him at two, and the fans had him at two. And it's largely because of the the level that he's already reached. I mean, we're talking about a 21-year-old player who I think we can say without a hint of of joking that there's a legitimate chance that Dirk Nowitzki isn't always going to be the best player in this franchise's history. Like, he's on that kind of trajectory in his sophomore season. That's probably the the strongest case to make for anyone who thinks that maybe two is a little bit too high for him right now is that he's on the trajectory to be – perhaps the best franchise player in, in Mavericks history. And I mean, we had to clarify that like a lot has to go right for that to happen. Yeah, so but, saying I mean, that he's on the trajectory, like Zion Williamson is on the trajectory to be one of the all time greatest players, but he's only played 20 games. Like a lot has to go right for that to happen. It's just that there's a chance. Right. And the fact that he's been able to sustain, basically, I know he t- trailed off towards the end of his rookie season, but you know, rookie walls are a real thing. And Dallas blew up its team that year towards the end of the season. So just everything, the triple doubles, the types of shots that he's taking, the way that he bends defenses. He's really improved his uh, touch and feel inside the arc, has a legitimate floater, just wreaks absolute havoc, is probably one of the NBA's is seven best passers too generous. Is that not high? I, I think that's fair. Just looking at the types of dimes that he's able to throw, easily one of my favorite players to watch in the league right now. And like you said, a lot has to go right if he's going to overtake Dirk Nowitzki. But the fact that they have someone who could, if everything goes right, be in the running to overtake Dirk Nowitzki before Dirk Nowitzki even technically left is just absolutely mind-melting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing here is from a, from a purely intangible standpoint, Like I think there's there's something to the idea that a player can like can operate with a level of joy on the basketball court that's just infectious. And I think we see it a lot of times from role players. Like Kent Bazemore comes to mind. Um, just as a guy who like so obviously loves playing basketball and is happy for his teammates that it helps. Um, but we also see it occasionally from superstars. And I think when that happens, it really matters a lot. And like maybe, maybe the best example is pre- unhappiness Orlando Magic era Dwight Howard where like he was just he was so obviously a fan favorite he so obviously just loved being on the basketball court he was always smiling he was reveling in the good plays that he made not in a self-serving way but in more of a like an altruistic like this is good for my team way and I think we see that a lot from Luca, where when he finishes an alley-oop or makes the alley-oop pass like you see the smile and you see how happy he is for his teammates and how happy his teammates are for him. And I I think it's, I think it's really important and it's not something that shows up in the box score. It's not something that shows up in advanced stats or catch all metrics, but it matters. The one thing I'll say, and I know better. So I overlook it when we're talking about him in the context of the NBA, he's probably been a top five player this season, 2019, 2020. It's, there's still something just weird about 
talking about how incredible his and valuable his shot is when he is only hitting 32.2% of his threes for his career. There's still something just off about it. I know because of the, the level of difficulty on them and the volume and how it opens up the floor for everybody else and even himself, and he can leverage his game off the dribble. Now, I totally get it. There's just still something weird about it. That's all I'm I think say. it's I think it's similar to like the pre-draft scouting reports where when he was playing in Euroleague play, like he was taking such difficult shots, he was facing so many double teams, he was taking so many end of shot clock heaves that his numbers were lower than the talent indicated. And I I, I feel like it's similar here, where it just he's so obviously the the fulcrum of that entire offensive system that the degree of difficulty ramps up and the numbers decline. But we know it, it's it's like Devin Booker in Phoenix, right? And I think that's an example we use a lot of where the system is not necessarily conducive to posting good surface level numbers. But it, as soon as you watch him play, like it's very obvious why that's the case and why that shouldn't be held as a knock against him. Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you said there. I believe, do we insert a drum roll for number one because everyone's dying to know who it is? Yeah, we can do that. Chandler Parsons. That's a drum roll. Yeah, I was I was shocked. <laughs> I was really surprised that Chandler Parsons, I mean, Dirk Nowitzki ended up at number one. And it was unanimous. You know, I had Chandler Parsons number one. You had Chandler Parsons number one. The fans had Chandler Parsons number one. Sorry, I think I'm getting him and Dirk confused because they play really similar games, right? Yeah, basically. And they both partied with Mark Cuban at some point, so. That's a pretty safe assumption. I feel like most Dallas Mavericks players have partied with Mark Cuban. I, Dirk Nowitzki, you could, you could talk about the game, just as far as superstar personalities go, seems like an actual dude with depth that you would like to hang out with, where some of the personas that are adopted by NBA players or anyone in the public eye can feel forced and inauthentic. His felt real and seems like someone you would just want to go have a beer with if if I drank beer, which which I don't. And just the stories um, about him, just the, the easygoing personality where he never seemed to take himself too seriously. I know a lot of that really happened after the 2011 title, but that's still that's still something. You look at just the promo videos he cut for the Mavericks. Uh, I still love the the game day uh, playoff, the hump day commercial. Still one of the best things ever. Even stories about like retirement, Dirk, just eating all the ice cream. Uh, just absolutely I respect that yeah just absolutely incredible and then to know that he spent his entire career with this team even though that's not necessarily decade related but also the fact that he adjusted during towards the back end of his prime where he more if you look at it more and more of his shots just came from these standstill situations or or off of assists and that's what enabled him to be such an effective player before it was just he got too old and the injuries just really built up for him uh, I respect that too. It's like, it's sort of the Vince Carter progression where mm. I don't know that you would ever call Dirk a full on role player, mostly because he was too important to this franchise. But the fact that he was able to adjust his game to account for all the different types of players Dallas put around him, all the different types of iterations of teams uh, he was on, um, the ball dominant players uh, that played alongside him, uh, tor- again, mostly towards the back end of his prime. It's it's a really big deal. And that's, not, I feel like, something that we don't even talk about enough. It's, oh, it's the shooting. It's the how he was sort of this trailblazer for a an archetype of offensive player, the bigs who can shoot and really do stuff off the dribble. But he also was able to stay effective really late into his career because he was willing to make these stylistic adjustments. I, maybe I'd fall short of calling them overhauls, but watching old Dirk Nowitzki was fun too. And it, it was definitely in the context of this conversation that that's absolutely important. 
Yeah, I mean, he was 100% a role player. It's just that his role was winning and being an offensive machine. And he did that in a variety of ways throughout his career. And I, I, I like that we're, we're just dancing around his resume because we don't really need to like justify him I at number one. He's talking about he's, it because it's such like a known quantity at this point, right? Right. I mean, if you have anybody other than Dirk in your as, as your number one player for the Mavericks for the last decade, then like, thank you for admitting that you're brand new to basketball. I, I appreciate the honesty. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's so obviously number one. I, I and to me, like, you know, it's it's obvious to say, but I'm always going to associate him with with what I've always called the flamingo fadeaway, that one-legged kickback, lean-back jumper. Um, I, th- I think it's one of the the five deadliest signature moves that we've seen in NBA history. Um, you know, it was it was just unstoppable, um, and and he used it from all over the court throughout his career. No one ever figured out how to defend it well, um, and it, it it is it deserves to be so strongly associated with him, even though so many different things could be. Listen, if they were ever to change the logo from Jerry West. That Dirk shot should be one of the nominations. I'm with you. We'll call we'll call Adam Silver after this. Yeah, good idea. Uh, the one he has nothing I, else going on right now, so <laughs> he'll he'll definitely be willing to listen to us. The one thing I will say, and I know this is largely a function of how they played and who he was playing with, but my one of my favorite just statistical quirks of his age 38, Dirk Nowitzki posted the highest defensive rebounding rate of his career, uh, 28.3. He had never had any. Uh, defensive rebounding rate higher than 25 uh, during his prime. He actually did have 25.2 the following season, which is the second highest of, of his career. So age 39, Dirk Nowitzki. I just find, again, I know it's a function of how they played and we can get into I'm going to be a little cynical here. <laughs> I think that it's also him putting on a little weight and not being as mobile and just spending all of his time around the basket because they didn't want to switch him to the perimeter. Well, he's also playing during those years is when he's playing more center right. too. So he's right. just going to be, and it's not to take anything away from him. Like you just did, impressive. you called Dirk fat out of shape and the ball just gravitated towards him. That's not, that's exactly what I said. I'm impressed that you edited that into the podcast. <laughs> uh, Dirk was one. That was obvious. Who were some of the honorable mentions that, that got votes? All right. So we had a lot of players who were uh, appearing on ballots at some point. We actually the two entries from the fans in their top 10, that did not make the composite rankings. Uh, the fans had Christoph Porzingis at number nine. I'm not sure there was much of an argument there, as uh, you know, even even though he was clearly reverting to an, an impressive level um, post ACL recovery uh, w- before the season was suspended. Like he's only spent a handful of games in a Mavericks uniform. Number ten, we had Monte Ellis. A lot of lot of points, maybe some empty points. Did you have a problem with either of those being in the top ten or or in the conversation? Kristaps, I would have. It's just like he's been yeah. up and down all year. It just didn't make sense to me. I get it because of what he represents as an acquisition, I suppose, but nah. I, and Monte Ellis takes me a little bit off guard, but at the same time, like you said, he scored. And it does seem that Mavericks fans, or at least a huge subsection of them, uh, really loved Monte Ellis. And so uh, just the kind of persona that he had where it felt like he played through a bunch of injuries there and that they respected it. So I could, you know, I, if you want to put him in the top 10, particularly because he had larger samples than uh, perhaps some of other of these guys on the list, although I'm, I'm looking at the minutes played now to see where he ends up. Yeah, he's ninth. So he was higher than Vince Carter, Terry Chandler. So, you know, that that can factor into it as well. Jason Kidd, too. So I wouldn't have an issue with that. The Kristaps one is just like, no, for me. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. So stop me uh, as we move beyond the top 10 for the fans, if there's anyone you want to talk about. 
but at 11, we had Dwight Powell. At 12, we had the tragically undersold Vince Carter. At 13, we had the kind of less tragically undersold, but still undersold Devin Harris. At 14, we had Wesley Matthews. At 15, we had Darren Williams. At 16, that we high? had... That they, high? They think I was, that they actually signed Darren Williams in free agency, and then even that, he didn't... That Darren Williams wasn't even really that good after free agency. Well, and, and anyone Dallas signs in free agency, you know that they were automatically a third target because they've been so bad at getting their first targets throughout this decade. Hashtag White Howard. Hashtag DeAndre Jordan. They did eventually bag DeAndre Jordan, though. Congratulations to them. <laughs> and and he, got a, uh, he did get a vote, but we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, at 16, we had Brandon Wright, who I thought was deserving a, a little more love. At 17, we had Moxie Kleba, who I thought was deserving of a lot more love, but I'm not surprised that he's underrated here because he's underrated everywhere. Are you on board with that? That Kleba is underrated? Yeah, I would say that. And I'm he was more, tied. Did you, did you call him Moxie? Is that actually how to pronounce it? I thought I said Maxie. Maybe I'm just mishearing it. What He's clearly underrated. Probably most so as a defender, by the way. But carry on. And speaking of underrated defense first players, he was tied with Dorian Finney-Smith, who I thought deserved a little bit of consideration for a top 10 spot, but not enough to really come close to getting one. Uh, tied at 19, we had Seth Curry, Deshaun Stevenson, and Dennis Smith Jr. Ooh, Deshaun Stevenson. Which, yeah, uh, much more deserving of, of the votes than, than DSJ, I think. <laughs> uh, at, at 22nd, we had a tie between Tim Hardaway Jr., Karan Butler, and Chandler Parsons. Uh, the only add thing I'll add in there is Tim Hardaway Jr. has had a hell of a season. She does not belong in this conversation at all. Tied at 25th with one last place vote apiece, we had six different players. Uh, we had Zaza Pachulia. I'm always down for Zaza getting votes. Uh, Jose Calderon. Rodrigue Bobois, who it has their... I, I feel like within the last decade, he's got to be one of the, the the people that we were most excited about who just totally never panned out. Wasn't it like year after year, it was like, yep, this is going to be the year. He's looking good in preseason. He's going to be a big contributor. He looks so athletic and then just injuries or ineffectiveness. Yeah, him and like, wasn't around the same time Rudy Fernandez too? Yeah, probably so. But at least Rudy Fernandez was good internationally. Fair enough. Uh, Also tied for 25th, we have Boban Marjanovic. I'm a little surprised he didn't get more votes just as a fan favorite. And then Jalen Brunson and DeAndre Jordan. Jalen Brunson plays his ass off, so... I respect the Jalen Brunson inclusion. DeAndre Jordan can GTFO from this list, is all I have to say. Yeah, doesn't belong here, but shout out to whoever included him. Well, that does it for us. This was It was tough, but this was I thought this was a fun conversation to have. Adam, thank you for rolling through this. Right back at you. As always, we will be back next time with the Denver Nuggets are up next, so that's going to be an exciting one. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Hardwood Knox on iTunes and wherever else you're getting your podcast. Follow Adam on Twitter at Frommel09. That will do it for us. Until next time, though, I leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, play for the Dallas Mavericks, OJ Mayo. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.